Hello and welcome to episode 61 of the Scottish Liberty Podcast. Short episode this week, but it's one that definitely packs a punch. This is a presentation that I put out a few years ago on YouTube on reasons why government is fated, always and everywhere, to fail. I put it out around the time of an election because I was tired of everyone debating on Facebook and telling me that I was somehow a bad person for exercising my right not to vote at the time. I hope you enjoy it as much as they didn't. Hello everyone and thank you for tuning in to this presentation on why government will never work. Now that's a controversial title because obviously most people think that some form of government will work, maybe if we just get the right politicians in there, or maybe they think the system's broken and we just need to fix it, like say for example in America some people believe that returning to a constitutional form of government will solve all the country's problems, but the problem with that is any form of checks and balances can only be imposed by the government and any government department is subject to the same incentives. Incentives is mostly what I'm going to talk about because that will reveal that the system isn't in fact broken. The system is actually working in the sense that it's doing what any system that has the incentives that government has would be doing. Yes, there's lots of variations of it, but they're all basically doing the same thing because that's what they're incentivized to do. Because the arguments in this video are very, very rational, you'll be able to see that they're true a priori, in other words, without the inference to any evidence whatsoever. The neat thing is that with what I'm saying in mind, you'll actually understand what's happening in the world a lot better because these theories are actually true and congruent with the real world evidence we have available to us. The first argument is that no government department is incentivized to solve problems. There's no way of getting around this, okay? If you started a government department to get rid of heroin addiction, if the people in that department actually solved the problem of heroin addiction in the geographical area they were meant to, they will have just put themselves out of a job completely. In fact, what they're incentivized to do is do a pretty poor job and then say that they didn't have enough funding so that every quarter their income will increase, increase. That's why since the 60s we've had a bunch of government departments responsible for reducing poverty and the poverty rate has not really declined that much. In fact, the gap between the rich and the poor has only got bigger and bigger and bigger. Those government departments don't actually have an incentive to solve the problems they're charged with solving. That would be bad enough, but the other problem is the government makes it illegal for anyone else to try and solve the problems that the government's meant to solve. So no one's really allowed to come in and stop crime or prevent crime or create organizations that look at the social factors that create crime and actually intervene at the beginning of crime-oriented people being created. That's the government's job and the government has no incentive to do it. And because it's not competing with anyone else who might do it better than them, they can't have very many people turn around and say, Look, what the government's doing is clearly stupid because here we've got a bunch of charities or voluntary organisations or non-profit organisations or even businesses who are doing a better job than the government. The government doesn't allow other people to do its job. Therefore, there's no trial and error or a self-correcting mechanism by which we can compare the performance of government services by inference to the performance of other service providers in the same industry. You know, like if Apple made a really crap phone 
phone, then HTC would make a better phone and it wouldn't sell very well, but at least people would be able to get the kind of phone they want. Likewise, if Starbucks was the only company in the world that was allowed to make coffee, I'm pretty sure they'd make really rubbish coffee. But because you've got a choice of any kind of coffee you want, you can pretty much certainly get whatever kind of coffee you like. Whether you value really great taste, then you can pay a bit more or get an inferior quality of coffee, but your needs can still get met. Because the government doesn't compete with any other organization in providing the services it provides, the government has no incentive to do its job well. That's the first major reason. I would add to that that government really depends on a lot of these problems existing to justify its scope, to force the consent of the people by appealing to their conscience. So, for example, if the standards of education are low, people are more likely to think, oh, we need more government spending on education. If there's a lot of poor health and the healthcare is very expensive in the private sector, people are more likely to advocate for socialised medicine and more government control over the medical industry. So at all junctures, crises are the health of the state. If the crime rate starts falling dramatically, well, then we need to get rid of a lot of policemen and judges. If there's a lot of poverty, then people are more likely to want more government to step in and solve the problem of poverty. On the other hand, if people at the bottom start to become rich, then they will do what the middle class people do, which is they'll save money and take their kids out of public schools and put them into better private schools. This diminishes the need for the state then they'll get better health insurance, which means that they're less likely to need the government to provide healthcare services. And this will go on down the line for every service that people claim that the government is necessary for to provide to those who can't afford it. It's really not in the interests of government to allow the poor to become rich, which may be why there is a lot of government intervention into the private sector provision of these services as well. That pushes the price of provision up so that only elites can afford it. And let's face it, they want some good schools to send their own children to and the availability of advanced medical services, at least for those who can afford them. The second major reason is that even having a government creates lobbying incentives that are so perverse that they corrupt the whole marketplace. And I'll explain why that's the case. Supposing I'm a company with a million pounds to invest in improving my services or increasing my profits by advertising. If I calculate that by spending that a million pounds on improving my products or advertising, I will make £1,500,000 in revenue, that's a pretty sweet return on my investment. But supposing I can take that £1,000,000 and give it to the state in order to lobby for preferential regulations that will keep my competitors out of the marketplace or any other type of government help that will result in £1,500,001 profit, then at that moment I'm going to go and give my money to the government rather than spend it on improving my services or advertising to get more customers because it's the rational thing to do. As soon as you've got a government there that can be lobbied, then you're going to create a situation where any company that can get more revenue from bribing the government is going to do that instead of serving its customers. 
This is going to result in everyone having a much poorer quality of goods for two reasons. One, most companies who are creating goods on any large scale are incentivized to the government. And two, there's going to be a lot less competition in the marketplace because all the big companies are lobbying for preferential treatment to keep small companies out. And that could just be a whole bunch of laws because big companies can hire lawyers and they can hire accountants to find tax loopholes, but small companies can't actually afford to do that. So the more complicated the law is, the better for big companies and the worse for small companies, which is really funny because most people think that regulations are meant to favor the weak against the strong. A lot of the time regulations are funded by big interests in order to corner the marketplace and get a monopoly that's given to them to the government. A lot of the time regulations favor established businesses that know the ropes rather than new upstart businesses. An example of regulations favoring the powerful over the weak even includes corporation tax. Now, most people think that corporation tax is a good thing, you know, tax them greedy capitalists. The thing is, corporations don't really pay tax. They pass the bill onto their customers by increasing their prices. They pass them on to their employees by lowering their wages. And they pass them on to their investors by not paying out as much money to their investors, making there less incentive for people to invest in upstart businesses. But that's not the main reason why corporation tax favors the wealthy. The main reason why corporation tax favors the wealthy is that corporation tax is paid by corporations after their spending. You and I and most people, we are taxed on our income and we have to live off whatever is left. Whereas corporations pay all of their expenses and they're taxed with corporation tax on what is left afterwards. Which means that if you happen to own a corporation, instead of paying for a holiday in Hawaii out of your salary, what you can do is set up a board meeting in Hawaii. You can do the same with your lunches and your cars. Put everything that you can get away with through as a business expense, even if it's for you personally. Now, most of us don't have corporations, so we don't have the privilege of putting things in as expenses and paying our taxes on what's left after that. We have to actually pay tax on our income and whatever is left is what we get to spend. The third major reason why government will never work is just because of the incentives of special interest groups versus taxpayers. If you don't know what a special interest group is, that could be anything like the military industrial complex. Any group that receives special privileges or benefits from the government is considered to be a special interest group. In the US, some examples of special interest groups are tobacco and sugar farmers. They get subsidies. Now, we know that tobacco and sugar are bad for people's health. So why is the government giving money to farmers that are growing products that are actually bad for people? That seems a bit silly, doesn't it? It actually is not silly and it makes sense when you actually understand the incentives of having a government. Because any special interest group, supposing you and I are a special interest group, we get £60 million a year from the UK government. That only adds up to £1 a year per each person in the UK. However, to you and I, that's a lot of money. That's £30 million each. No one really has the incentive on an individual or a small group basis to fight us for their £1 more a year. But if any group of people did decide to get together and say, hey, hey, what those two guys are getting from the government is not fair. They ought not to get it. Their products are harmful. 
we actually have £60 million a year worth of incentive to actually fight a campaign to secure our benefits indefinitely. Over five years, that's worth £300 million to us. Is a small group of conscientious protesters ever going to be able to compete with that? Once you understand this, you'll understand why government spends money and gives it to rich and powerful people so often because the amount of money that those people get from the government so outweighs the individual incentive of a few people or a large group of people to actually fight. And, you know, £1 a year might not seem that very much, But when you add together all the special interest groups, it's obvious that this is going to be a serious drain on people's standards of living. And it also means that if any really unjust organisation is getting money from government, it's really, really hard to stop them from getting this money. And that doesn't just apply to corporations and things like that. If you try to make significant cuts to any area of government, including any bureaucratic class which was assessed and deemed not to be providing anything of real value, everyone who worked in that industry, whether they were bureaucrats or whether they actually contributed something, would have a huge incentive to go on strike. Now, I have got nothing against people going on strike to get better standards of living or better pay. I'm fully for people unionising, but there's a big difference between private sector labour unions and public sector labour unions. And that's because, as I said before, the government makes it illegal to do anything better than the government. So when public sector unions go on strike, they're actually on strike in a monopoly service. I'm fully for them striking for their right to better pay or better working conditions or to protect their jobs, but only in the circumstance where anyone else who can do their job better than them is not made into a criminal by the law. I'm all for government workers going on strike, but only so long as other people are able to actually come in and provide the services that the government provides and show that alternatives exist that could actually be more efficient than what the government does and serve the public better. If the government would just let people innovate and let people do a better job than it without throwing them in jail for it. So nothing against public sector workers, nothing against people getting together in unions, but it is a fact that when a public sector union goes on strike, they are on strike in a monopoly service. It's not the same as private sector workers going on strike to protect their conditions. The next reason why government will never work is a really major reason and that's because democracy is basically bribocracy. Any government will have to both bribe people to vote for it when it's in the election stage and pay off anyone who made major campaign contributions to that party if those politicians want to continue getting funding. The government doesn't have any money of its own at all so it can only generate income in one of three ways. One is to steal money from groups and give them to other groups. And I know most people don't think that taxation is stealing, but if you look at it, what else is it? Someone says to you, you earned something, it's not yours, it's mine. If you don't give it to us, we'll give you a strongly worded letter. If you ignore that, we'll take you to court. If you don't come to court, we'll come to your house and throw you in a cage with murderers and rapists. And if you resist us, we'll shoot you. That's basically what tax is. It's the implicit or explicit threat of force. 
So you can take money from one group and give them to another group. If the one group is a small group and you're giving it to a bigger group, that's a really good way to get votes. Because obviously people don't like having money taken off them, but they really like getting special privileges and getting free stuff. So the government has an incentive to find minority groups and tax them to give those taxes to majority groups because any party, regardless of what party it is, is going to get more votes by doing that. The second way that they have of gaining money or bribing people is to just deficit spend to borrow lots of money and then pay it forward because the unborn can't speak for themselves in the UK we're one trillion pounds in debt and a large reason for that is because the government has an incentive to borrow money because again people really don't like having stuff taken away from them but they do like getting free stuff so you can bribe them by giving them public services in the here and now and just pay it forward and charge it to the unborn which is kind of a form of slavery because you're actually getting the younger generation or the unborn generation to pay for stuff that you got I mean talk about exploitation a third way that you can get money if you're the government is to print it now printing money causes inflation but most people can't really trace it back to the government so when you go back to the shops and the prices have increased everyone must blame it on those greedy capitalists they don't understand that maybe the government doing quantitative easing a few months ago led to an increase in the money supply which led to an increase in the prices of their groceries this also privileges the rich and powerful because the money is at its highest value when the first people who get to spend it get to spend it so the banks get the money first they get to lend it to rich corporations. By that point, the value of the money has gone down slightly, but not as much as it will by the time they pay their employees and their shareholders who eventually get the money when it's at its lowest value and can't even trace the fact that their money is worth less back to the government. What's more, this encourages people to be really irresponsible with money because when inflation's high, anyone who saves loses the value of the money that they saved, but people who borrow and spend beyond their means are actually rewarded because when they pay back the money that they borrowed, the value of that is actually less than it was when they borrowed it. Now, because some people want to save and just putting your money in the bank is not a viable option because inflation is so high and interest rates are so low, this means a lot of money ends up getting herded into the stock market by people who aren't really qualified to play with that money or they have to give it to hedge fund managers and things like that. Now, that's obviously good for stock speculators and Wall Street bankers and things like that. But this is going to cause massive amounts of money that could just be in a good savings account being herded around the stock market by people who really don't have the expertise to be doing that. And we've kind of seen the effects of that recently with the big economic crisis that happened not all that long ago. That wouldn't have been nearly as severe if there wasn't so much money wrapped up in these risky investments that not everyone really understood. Because people don't know a lot about economics, the free market gets blamed for things that are actually the doing of the government. So the government printing money is a really, really bad idea. A fourth way that the government can effectively bribe people, and this is a really clear reason why government can't work because governments have to be short-termist in nature regardless of which party is in power. If doing something is going to have good consequences in the short term, it makes them look good, particularly if the bad long-term consequences can't be traced back to them by anyone who's not an expert. Now, on the other hand, if they need to make a tough decision that 
is felt as tough in the short term, but over the long term will do good for the country, that's really not of any value to them or any concern, because by the time the long term consequences are felt, they'll no longer be attributed to the people who took those policies. In fact, most likely someone else is going to get in power and get the credit for the fact that the economy is going really well. For example, if the government's in charge of the interest rates, the government has the incentive to keep the interest rates as low as they can get away with. Why? Because when it's cheap to borrow money, as it is when the interest rates are low, then people can take out loans and buy things and that makes it look like the economy is really going but over the long term it has serious consequences. As I touched upon in brief, it encourages irresponsible economic behaviour because it takes away the reward of saving but encourages people to borrow at a low cost and spend that money even beyond their means. But that's not all. One of the reasons why it's so expensive to buy a house or to rent a property is because the interest rates have been artificially low for so long and what happens when interest rates are low is obviously people who couldn't afford a mortgage at a high rate of interest can afford it at a low rate of interest and that pushes a lot of money into the housing market. It also means that a lot of people who've got a lot of money can buy more and more properties and rent them out. Houses cost about 10 times what they cost in the 70s, at least in the country that I'm in. So that's really, really bad for people who want to actually get onto the property ladder for the first time in their life and get a house. And that can really be traced to the government fiddling with the interest rates because, I mean, imagine a house was a tenth of what it is now. People's standards of living would be much higher. But it suits the government to keep the interest rates low because again people are very ill-informed on economics and they don't actually understand that driving all that money into the economy artificially creates inflation and a housing bubble. When they increase the interest rates as they're going to have to do sooner or later you're going to have to see a lot of people being evicted and having their houses repossessed which you know is freaking terrible and the cause of that is government intervention in the market. If interest rates were allowed to function properly, then they're actually meant to be a signal of what to do with their money. It's a self-correcting mechanism. Interest rates are meant to actually indicate the price of borrowing money according to what's going on in the economy. So if a lot of people were saving, there'd be a lot of spare money lying around and the interest rates would go down. So that would make it safe for people to borrow money. But if hardly anyone was saving, then the interest rates would go up, making it more expensive for people to borrow. And it would also encourage people to save money to take advantage of those high interest rates. So it would be a self-optimizing system that would probably average out at the kind of interest rate that people are happy with in general and maybe fluctuate up and down a bit but only slightly once that equilibrium has been found. The interest rate should not be controlled by the government. It should just be determined by supply and demand because when you artificially lower the interest rate that creates an excess of spending in the economy which creates an economic boom which is temporary but a bust is likely to follow 
And when you in artificially increase the interest rates, then everyone who borrowed money at a low interest rate suddenly has to pay a lot more in their mortgage and is at serious risk of losing their house. That's not the way that an economy should be run. But again, most people don't understand economics. So no one really brings up the government on this stuff. They just blame the free market when there's a housing bubble or a banking bubble or a dot-com bubble, not actually realising that it's stuff like the government toying with the interest rates that created these economic crises. Finally, I'd just like to make an argument which isn't really a pragmatic argument, but it's more of a moral argument. When did we actually establish the moral basis of democracy? Because in our day-to-day lives, democracy isn't the moral basis of anything. I mean, I don't want other people to vote on what clothes I get to wear or where I get to live or what job I get to have. If you, me and a friend of ours rented out an apartment together and we ran it as a democracy, that would mean that two of us could vote and you would have to clean up the kitchen every night and do all of the housework. And that would be fair because we'd be running it as a democracy. So democracy has built into an incentive system to persecute minorities for the benefit of the majority. Democracy really isn't the moral basis of anything. I mean, as the tasteless joke goes, nine out of 10 people enjoy gang rape. Now, that's not a very nice joke. It's kind of sick, but it does make the point really well. Like, just because a majority of people vote for something doesn't mean that they get to impose what they vote on the other person. In day-to-day life, we call that violence. So I don't understand why people think that stops being violence when the government does it. I mean, if people are against 10 people imposing their will on one, or 100, or 1,000, or 5,000 on a smaller minority, then when does it stop being violence just because the government does it, or it's over a larger geographical area? People think that democracy is such a good thing, and we should have it at the centre of our society, because that's basically saying mob rule by ballot, you know, whatever nine of us say is right, we get to impose by force and violence on the other 10%. If you're still sceptical about everything I've said, answer me this. Have you ever heard these arguments before in the mainstream discourse? I mean, you might have heard one or two of them from your radical Marxist friend or your libertarian friend or your anarchist friend, but you won't hear any of these arguments on TV shows or you won't hear any of them uttered by politicians. You won't hear politicians being brought up with these arguments by show hosts or by audiences on Question Time or on Hard Talk. No one's taught these arguments in school. Even most economics or political philosophy students are not actually exposed to these arguments. So why is that? If these arguments are easily dispatched, how come almost no one has heard them in the mainstream political discourse? And how come they haven't been really easily dispatched with? Because I've never heard a satisfactory response to these arguments, which are basically logically true. And this is in a democracy where people are meant to vote. Surely in a democracy where people are meant to vote, you would expect those people who are meant to vote to be educated in the potential flaws of the system that they're meant to vote in. You'd think they would have established the moral basis of that system very early on, not just accepted it as a given almost ubiquitously. If it's so justified, everyone should know the justifications for it. Everyone should have heard these objections and the logical debunking of them. Well, I hope you found this video educational, even if you didn't agree with me. Thanks very much for staying to listen to the end, if that's what you've done. And leave any comments telling me what you think of the arguments I've made and share it with your friends. A lot of work went into it and I made it specifically because I hadn't heard anyone else do it so far, even though there are a lot of anarchists who talk about these things and have made some of these arguments. 
I thought it was really important to bring them all together. Okay, I hope you enjoyed that. If I missed anything out, you can send me an email at scottishlibertypodcast at gmail.com. Until next week, be libertarians. Don't be a filthy, filthy statist.